Hi there, dishheads, calling all of you to summoning you to another dishcast. <laughs> We're doing great at the dishcast, I have to say. Our traffic is amazing. Our traffic overall is very buoyant, and we're thrilled to have you as part of this conversation. The podcast seem to be driving a lot of the new readers and new subscribers, so thank you. And if you do enjoy the stuff and love it without ads and without all sorts of other blather, subscribe. Get the whole thing completely free and free of all distractions. This week, we're going to talk philosophy and we're going to talk about wokeness. We're going to talk about the Enlightenment. We're going to talk about some key figures behind what some people think of as wokeness, as it were. And we're going to bandy some ideas around. There's a very interesting new book out from Susan Neiman. And it's called Left is Not Woke. And I would summarize it really as a defense of the Enlightenment against some of its modern critics, at least a partial defense of the Enlightenment. And Susan is a philosopher and a writer, long focusing on the Enlightenment, moral philosophy, metaphysics, and politics. She was professor of philosophy at Yale and Tel Aviv University. And in 2000, she assumed her current position as director of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam. Susan is the author of nine books, including Evil in Modern Thought, Moral Clarity, and my favorite, Learning from the Germans. Her new book which we're going to discuss, The Left is Not Woke. Just to give you a, a heads up, in the future we have some great guests. We have Nigel Bigger on colonialism, Chris Starwalt, the guy who ran Fox News's data center, the brain cell, who was fired because he called the election right, is also coming on to talk about Fox. We have Tobias Lee on why she was fired as the DEI director. We have Ben Smith, my old bete noir, on the business of online journalism. We're going to have fun on that one. We have Mark Lilla coming up on liberalism and John Oberg on veganism. And we're saving that one up because temporarily I am trying to eat plant-based meat and plant-based eggs because I want to. I want to overcome my, my complicity in climate change and trying to do it one burger at a time. And uh, I'll keep you posted on that. But it has been a fascinating little journey into rubbery plant-based eggs. <laughs> that, was one of my, that was my breakfast yesterday. It was so strange. You, I just poured out of a little, little um, squeegee, like a ketchup thing, into your, into your skill, skillet and <laughs> make scrambled eggs. And, you know, if I had a blindfold on, I, I, I think I would have been fine with eating them, but there was something about it that was just kind of weird. Anyway. I can give you a will, great granola recipe if you like. <laughs> you can solve, solve your breakfast problem. Yeah. Oh, I guess granola doesn't have any climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there you have just declared yourself openly a leftist, Susan, with your granola in the morning. But I'm sorry. I'm just such a joke. I anyway, Susan, welcome. I, I eat meat with a sense of guilt. So, you know, not very often, yes. but occasionally. That's where I am too, Susan. I just am a guilt-ridden meat eater. But Susan, what an interesting life you've had. Tell me where you were born and, and, and what influenced you as a child, your parents or, or, or anybody else. So most people think I was born and grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And contrary to what 
one might think. I was actually born in Atlanta, Georgia, um, which I hated when I was growing up there and would have done anything to have gotten out and gone to New York City, particularly what I thought of as Greenwich Village or <laughs> Europe, which I knew nothing about. But in fact, I've realized with time that I was quite lucky in, in a number of ways to grow up there. My mother was very involved in the civil rights movement. And that had a profound influence on me and the way I think I thought of myself. I thought about justice. And I thought about being a Jew. My parents were Yankee Jews who had come down to Atlanta just before I was born. And I learned from at home, but also from the at the synagogue that we belong to, which is, by the way, John Ossoff's synagogue. I followed the Georgia races with great interest, also gave as much money as I possibly could, because the connection between that synagogue and Ebenezer Baptist Church and Martin Luther King goes back to my childhood. Okay, And the lesson that I got at my mother's knee was basically, well, Jews were strangers in the land of Egypt. We were slaves, and therefore our place is to stand with people who were slaves in the land of Georgia. And you know, of course, I thought that this was just the way all Jews thought. I, it was disconcerting to realize that there are two very strong strands in the history of the Jewish tradition. There's this universalist tradition. We were slaves, we were strangers, and therefore we have a particular affinity and a particular obligation towards other people who were slaves and strangers. And then there's the very tribalist view, which is they were always out to get us, and we have to take care of ourselves. And you see... You so, know, at the, so in your very youth, you, you saw this tension between universalism and tribalism, and your mom, presumably because she was interested in these universal values of justice and and saw Jewish values as essentially applying to everyone throughout the world, that was a formative yeah. concept for you. Which yeah, is, that was... when I read your book, it feels like that's what's that's still there, essentially. You're, you're... It's absolutely still there. And then, of course, I, I went on to refine it in, in various ways of my own. So what did your mom do exactly? Did she organize? Did she, was she, uh, yeah, you know, she, did she was, go on the uh, freedom at, at marches? The or? At the time I was, I, was, I was growing up, she was a housewife, and she was involved in the campaign to desegregate the schools, for which we did get calls in the middle of the night from the Klan that I only knew about much later. It was a big source of tension between my parents because my father thought she was endangering the family. Of course, all the children now are quite, and the grandchildren are quite proud of the fact that she was on the right side of history at that moment in time. But at the time, it was not a common thing to do. You know, so... And what about your schooling there? Where did you, uh-huh. where did you, how did that affect you too? What, where did you go? Okay. All right. You, you want to get into the weeds here. So I hated school. I hated school from the minute I began it. I was this nerdy bookish kid who preferred, you know, playing in the woods to playing with dolls, who was no good at sports, but very interested in reading and writing. And this was not. You and me a- both. We had the same childhood, Susan. <laughs> you did? Okay. <laughs> I was in the woods, too. I didn't like the sport. I didn't like all the... I was very sort of solitary and 
and kept to myself and was buried in books and ideas from a quite yeah, early so age. Yeah, so this is how yeah, you we get it. wind up becoming a writer, basically, is that if you're that kind of a kid, I got very, very lucky when I was 12 and I got involved in the, the first integrated youth group in, in the state of Georgia. Mm. It was the Actors and Writers Workshop, which happened to be run mm. by the parents of Julia Roberts. Recently, mm. she was in the news for talking about the fact that her birth was paid for by Coretta Scott King because the parents were so poor and they were running this school, you know, it was this after-school program for lost teenagers in, you know, little budding bohemian teenagers who were, again, more interested in books and writing and theater than, than anything else, that they had no health insurance like many, many Americans. So Coretta Scott King paid for Julia's birth. She was that went by that little piece of information went viral so that was what i then did on my own i was in that milieu which was the first time and place that i felt that i was not entirely alone in the woods but you know we're talking 19 we're talking about a moment in time when many people who were older and wiser than i thought there was a revolution around the corner and you know we're going into the the time of the greatest protests against the war in Vietnam, coming out of the civil rights movement. And long story short, I wound up thinking that there were more important things to do than going to high school. My family had moved. It was a poor county high school. And so I dropped out of school when I was 14 and lived in a commune for a couple of years in different parts of the states was, you know, I, I mean, I did what people did in the 60s. I was just a bit premature or precocious. In age, yes. In age, you were, you that's were, right. Were... No, I was right in the, you know, I was doing all those things at the right time. I was just, I was just ridiculously young. And So how did you, how did you mature into going to college and then grad school and become this philosopher? <laughs> I know, it's... <laughs> It's. I, I. I told you it was a. It was a strange story. You dropped um, out of high school. You're in these commie, commie, communes with all these commies. And how did you get yourself at into a certain track? point? And I wish I knew who first put the volumes of Sartre and de Beauvoir in my hands. I cannot remember this. I may be able to, you know, go through pages and pages of papers and find it out. But in any case, I read a little Sartre and de Beauvoir and decided again innocently and ignorantly, that sounds like a good life. I think I'll become a philosopher. And, you know, not having any clue about just how unusual their lives were as philosophers. At the time, I don't know if this is still the case, City College New York had a program whereby if you moved to New York City, you could take a high school equivalency exam and then you could enroll at City College, which is what I did for two years. I went to night school, went worked in a little publishing company downtown. And after two years, I applied for and transferred to Harvard. I said I was their, their token high school dropout that year. At Harvard, I was initially quite disappointed by what the way that philosophy was being taught there at the time. But I got quite lucky. I had some wonderful mentors, eventually John Rawls and Stanley Cavell, and I buried myself into, you know, believing that 
this was the um, the queen of all the I mean, Kant once called philosophy the queen of the sciences, the queen of the sciences, the arts, the disciplines. That there was absolutely nothing more valuable one could do with one's life than study, write, and teach philosophy. And I I was set on the road to become a fairly straightforward and academic philosopher, but I wanted to spend a year learning. I wanted to check out European philosophy in in real time. And I got a Fulbright Fellowship to go to Berlin for what was supposed to be a year, and I was going to come back. And I... How shall I put this? It was less the philosophy that moved me in in Europe and in Berlin than the kinds of questions that were being asked. So if you could get the entire philosophy department at Harvard burning passionately about the question of whether philosophy was possible after Wittgenstein, the question that was being asked in Berlin and Frankfurt was, is philosophy possible after Auschwitz? And that just seemed so much more deep and serious and intense to me that I wound up staying for nearly seven years. The other thing that was fascinating about Berlin was it was a divided city at the time. And if you had an American passport and a little extra cash, you could very easily go, you know, behind the Iron Curtain for the day. And that was absolutely fascinating to see two completely different worldviews being played out. One one of the ways that I worked on my German at the time was to listen to the news in the East and in the West. And if you listen to both, you would get actually a pretty good picture of what was going on in the world. If you only listen to one, a lot would go under the table. So that was fascinating. What was also absolutely fascinating at the time is I had the 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 idea when I went to Berlin, very few Americans who weren't soldiers went there and even fewer Jews. And I had, you know, a lot of people just avoided going to Germany at all. This is 1982 that I went there. And what impressed me so much, having made the decision to go, which surprised a lot of people, annoyed a lot of people, was the degree to which Germans in Berlin were struggling with the heritage of the Nazi period. And I got fascinated with that whole process of historical reckoning. It's something I wrote about in my, I I write about periodically, wrote a lot about in my last book. And so I stayed, wasn't sure whether I would go back to doing philosophy or not. I mean, I finished my dissertation, but I was also working as a freelance writer, doing radio plays and things like that for the German media. Eventually decided to leave Berlin at exactly the wrong historical moment in the beginning of 1989 and took a job teaching at Yale. (laughs) (laughs) Don't! (laughs) These things Uh, happen, Susan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I know. It people just shows who... no one, no one expected it to happen when it actually happened. It really was a, no. it kind of staggering to me. And having been in the, I was in the government department, well, just still in the government department at Harvard, and 
tried to find anyone who had predicted it at that moment. No one, no one did. It really came out of the blue for a lot of people. Forget about the Gov Department at Harvard. Think about the CIA. I mean, or or the German intelligence. Well, service. I never expect the CIA to get anything right. I mean, no one would. But the sheer lack of any. I mean, it's one of these wonderful, wonderful or not, but it was a reminder that history happens and that and that can take rather dramatic, contingent turns that really can't. I think can be can be fully explained by anything but themselves. Absolutely, I agree with you uh, entirely. I want to move forward to your current position, which is which is likely to make you a, a bit of a target, obviously, because this book is not, the latest book is not exactly the most, let's put it this way, conventional, consensus-driven, current conventional wisdom book. It's a, it's a book, I would argue, that is really, a, at some deep level, a defense, a qualified defense of the Enlightenment as opposed to other ways of approaching history and the world. And I just want to start you with a, a tough question because it's being asked as a kind of gotcha to some people, but I'm just, but don't feel, but take whatever time you need to explain this, but what, you said woke is not left. Well, what is woke? Let's, let's just ask that question first of all. In your view, what are the key characteristics of that worldview that, that, that are the most important to it? So what I think is so confusing about the discussion right now is that woke appeals to a lot of traditionally left-wing emotions, many of which I share. So a concern for social justice, sympathy with the plight of people who've been marginalized historically, a desire to, as far as one can, correct historical wrongs, okay? A sense of indignation about them. And all of those are emotions that I actually share. The problem is what I think woke tends to do is to undermine those emotions with a series of theoretical assumptions that come from very reactionary sources. So for example, the idea that tribal connections are the most genuine and deepest ones that we have, okay? The reduction of identity, I mean, we all of us possess, just at, at a guess, I'd say most of us possess about 20 identities that are very important to us and that have different amounts of importance at different times in our lives. I mean, you know, there's a point at which your primary identity is child and you want to get out of it. And if you have children, you realize all of a sudden that, you know, being a parent, people start introducing themselves as, you know, I'm sure as mother and you suddenly realize oh, okay this is this is a quite new and important part of my identity i we could go on about it my guess is that everybody has a good 15 to 20 pieces of themselves without which they couldn't imagine themselves as themselves okay mm -hmm. but one of the things that work does is to reduce all of these really quite interesting and sometimes moving parts of one's identity down to two. And the two happen to be ethnicity and gender. And they tend to be, I know I'm moving into murky waters here, but they tend to be the parts of us over which we have the least agency that we didn't choose. And the parts that are most likely to be 
marginalized or victimized, okay? And that's that's been a very dangerous move in in many ways, but in particular by folk by putting all the focus on those two tribes that one you know, out of many tribes that one might belong to, those two tribes, woke has undercut the genuine sense of solidarity that liberal left people need to have. It's a, you know, fundamental principle of um, the liberal left, and I can distinguish between those in a moment if you want me to, and between liberals and left. I know you don't well, care about your. I'm neither. I'm neither of those. Two. I know. Well, I, I am. Know you a, don't. I am a liberal. I'm a liberal in a classical sense, right. and and many of the values that I want to conserve are liberal values, essentially. So I'm. I sort of have a conservative epistemological defense of liberal democracy because I think it happens to be something that we are proud of in the West and and should be proud of in the way that we have evolved over the last couple of hundred years. And I want to. I want to protect that while also seeking constantly, obviously, to adjust it, to reform it, to see where it's headed. So so that's where, that's sort of no, where I I'm coming it. from. I mean, I, from having but, read some of your work, I, you know, I, I would say you were the last intelligent conservatives around. Well, very sweet of you to say that. But here's, here's the thing I want to think about to your mom, and I think about, fascinating really, but her, tri- her membership of a particular tribe, as it were, being Jewish, Mm-hmm. was what enabled her to universalize it to the experience of African-Americans being enslaved and then segregated and policed and all the rest of it. So it's a mix. You you use your, you don't have to deny that you're a member of a particular no, identity. absolutely not. But you, but you see it as a way to identify with other people, with other identities, and in the same kind of struggles or maybe experiences that you have. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. So, so identity so anyway, matters, but doesn't it's not the identity is a way to sort of understand truth. Really, it, it 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 can't be just its own meaning, right? It has to have something beyond itself. Well, it has to have something beyond itself, but it also has to, you know, recognize I think just how broad and and full our identities are. I mean, the idea that mm-hmm. we only have one or two um, right. strikes me as reductionist and silly okay trust me i th- when i actually put up the various adjectives that could be applied to me they are almost legion and at some point when you add up all the different identities all of us have you end up with individualism at some level because <laughs> yes. there's a point at which intersectionalism becomes individualism because there are so many complex interactions. So you're right, what's happening on the left is not so much identity as the reduction of identity into some core aspects that define everything else. That's and right. your your argument is about that's reductionism. It doesn't capture the the reality and the complexity of the human experience. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that's one problem or one way in which I think that woke movements, for all that they appeal to progressive emotions, diverge deeply from progressive principles. because the pro- which, which is why, for example, if you have identity racial politics, I'm just, I'm, I'm warming to the theme, that you, you forget that, that maybe white people will form an identity policy. If tribalism is, is your, what matters, what happens when the bigger tribe is exerting its tribal interests against yours? Well, this is, you've just opened a a whole can of worms, but just to to state what it is, right-wing nationalist movements 
ha are having a moment right now and they find it much easier to work with each other and to cooperate with each other than do various forms of progressive movements. And this strikes one as completely counterintuitive, but as a matter of fact, it makes sense. So Modi's, you know, Hungarians and Netanyahu's Israeli. I mean, Modi's, Modi's Hindus. I'm sorry, Modi's, Modi's Hindus, Orban's Hungarians, and Netanyahu's Israelis, that is the people in those countries that support, and it is, unfortunately, a majority of those people who support these very far-right movements, they all converge on at least one principle, which is the only important connections you will ever have with anyone are based on your tribal identity, and you have no genuine obligations towards anyone else. And actually, the world would be better if we lived in, you know, small, discrete tribal territories. So, you know, it's, it's Putin, paradoxical. Putin is, other... Putin is definitely sure. part of that as well. Putin is absolutely part of that. What's quite disturbing, if you look at someone like Modi, for example, but it's not different from the way that, well, it's slightly different from Netanyahu, um, is the use of what seem to be progressive woke tropes in order to further really violent and disastrous right-wing governments. So to say, don't talk to us about human rights. We know what you Europeans did in the name of human rights when you colonized us. We reject your categories. I mean, Putin talks in those terms too, okay? So we're, we're on very dangerous ground here. And one of the reasons that I wrote this book is to try and remind people that if you go down this tribalist route, you're going to find yourself in some extremely uncomfortable company. So that's one of the progressive principles, of the principle of universalism, basically, that people are not connected by the contingencies of birth, but by convictions and beliefs. And free associations. And free association, absolutely. <laughs> and choices and... and, yeah. and all the rest of it, that it's the idea that the most important thing about me is that I'm English or white, when those are actually two identities I've never really thought that much about. <laughs> they were minor in my general worldview compared to things like Catholic or gay or or middle child or exactly. uh, all the rest of it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's one progressive principle that the woke have left by the wayside, the idea that, you know, free convictions and, you know, choices and beliefs are more important than that you might share with anyone, anywhere on the planet, are more important than, than tribal identities. Of course, mm -hmm. you know, we're influenced by histories and geographies, but to say that we're determined by them is just false. Okay. Well, so that's, that's you see that's a that point you make in the book is constantly interesting because is what happens is you see an insight that the work have, and it's an important insight. So, for example, that the United States cannot be understood without understanding the the long and deep history of slavery, of segregation, of the torture of the labor camps in the South, all the, the horrors of apt. But does it mean that, therefore, America is irredeemable 
is it defined by this? They even use the word D in your DNA. I know. Which is such a fascinating moment, isn't it? When they say racism is in the American DNA, we will never it's overcome. Okay. Well, how right-wing is that? I mean, how I, I, tribalist I, is that? Well, so that's, so that's the, uh, the, the third principle. I mean, there are two other progressive mm -hmm. principles that let's, I think the woke have given up on. One is the them. idea that you can distinguish between justice and power. Not always, yep. okay? Some claims to justice or, you know, virtue in, in various ways are, in fact, disguised claims to power. Take mm -hmm. the war in Iraq, all right, is a, is a prime example to say that, you know, the Bush administration tried, they, they came up with so many different rationalizations for invading Iraq that anybody, even without a security clearance, should have been able to tell that actually if they'd had one good reason for going to war, they would have stuck to it. But the one that they finally, after they gave up on weapons of mass destruction, the one that they finally stuck to was we're bringing democracy to a tyrannized people, okay? That's, I don't, no, if anybody, that's, that's they're actually. Well, here's artists. what I would say. I mean, now you, you put me on the spot here because, because obviously I was in the middle of that horrible right. misjudgment. But here's what I would say in, in respect to that. I I think it's it's too easy to say they never thought that we're going to actually create democracy in the middle. It's too easy. Now it might have been that other interests overtook that, or that when you say you're for human rights, but you end up torturing people, you're. Perfectly, it's perfectly within one's right to say you've you've completely screwed this up. You've you've ended up doing the opposite of what you said you intended. But equally, you're right. It is it's 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 helpful to point out that the stated objectives of things aren't always inevitably exactly. what their actual motivation is. And so the idea that, for example, liberal democracy has not, even post civil rights, seemed to achieve racial justice is enough to say it was never about that. It's at its core. The entire project was about the subjugation of non-whites and therefore the entire substrata of, of, of sorry, superstructure of, of the enlightenment of, and let's, let's, let's get to that because this is a fascinating moment, the justice power moment. The enlightenment itself was simply a way in which Europeans could justify their control of the rest of the world and, their, and this has become an incredibly potent critique of the Enlightenment to such an extent that people don't even think further than that. Well, Kant is a racist, is it? And <laughs> I mean, yep. honestly, if that's what you take from Kant, <laughs> you have a, you, you're looking, you're looking in the bizarrest way for something that's there. It may, may be true. Then you take it from there because... Yeah, well, when I first heard this sort of story, maybe... 15 years ago, a little longer now, I thought it was so ignorant that I, I thought it was going to disappear, okay? The idea that the Enlightenment is a Eurocentric, colonialist, racist movement bent on, you know, propagating certain ideals in order to control the world is just, it turns, it turns everything upside down. You have, you know, the reproach of Eurocentrism was invented by the Enlightenment. Okay, this and and many of them 
suffered for it, were exiled for it, had their books burned for it, or were even threatened with death for arguing that non-Europeans had something to teach Europeans. Okay, so this was the every time a post-colonial theorist says you need to pay attention to the rest of the world. They're resonating with Kant and Diderot and uh, Rousseau and Voltaire, you know. Or but, even going back to Montaigne, uh, the, sure. the, the most brilliant early provocateur in telling us that other cultures that we instinctively think are inferior could actually be better than us if we could just like think about it a little bit. Yeah. So that the notion that Europe and that European thought was incredibly insular, I think is just, especially in that era, not true. Not true. No, it, no, it wasn't true at all. And uh, let's see how it, uh, how did it get? Well, what you're saying is, it, and what you, and as you say in the book, is in some ways, this notion that the Enlightenment is just a, is, is, is a scam, really, at some level, mm-hmm. is, is sort of Thrasymachus's point in, in, in the Republic, which is, oh, come on, you, you're talking about justice, really, all justices. And you hear this in everyday conversations you hear. Oh, it's always fixed. It's always rigged. There's no such justice. All that, everything that happens is simply a function of one person's great or one institution's greater power over others. It's, the rest is just bullshit. And, and on first blush, it's because it has this lovely, cynical, sophisticated feel to it. We're just we're exposing what's underneath all this. It has a certain appeal until you think about it for 30 more seconds. Well, hopefully you think about it for 30 more seconds. I mean, <laughs> well, what, they don't, unfortunately. But <laughs> let's what, just what, try what, and keep what, the 30 seconds going here. Well, let's remind everybody who Thrasymachus is because yes, unfortunately sorry, many yes. people don't. Thrasymachus is the young interlocutor at the beginning of Plato's Republic who um, Plato says comes in like a wild beast. He's a young man and basically his his message to Socrates and his friends who are trying to define justice and virtue is this is all bullshit, okay? You know, there is no such thing as as justice or virtue. Those are all concepts that the powerful invent to fool people who are less powerful into doing what they want to. Now, what I always find annoying about about this line of argument is that it's it's usually used it's not only used by young people who act like perhaps wild beasts but it's used by all kinds of people and let's let's not let's not dump on the young here but they always talk about it as if they'd discovered something new and it's <laughs> 2500 years old this line of argument okay and i mean i brought up the iraq war not meaning to Go into your. You're very welcome to do that. I am very vulnerable, and I'm welcoming and 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 trying to acknowledge my errors for hey, twenty years now. People make mistakes of judgment. Yeah. People do, but I I bring that up only because for some people that's a clear cut case of mm-hmm. a time when you know there were an appeal to democratic values that actually yes I think it's historically true that some people did believe the values that they were that they were claiming, but I don't think that that was what was moving the U.S. government to act. And so that always seems like a, to 
to some people anyway, like an open and shut case of, you see, here were these values, people were talking about them. In fact, it was all about something else. Therefore, let's forget acting in terms of genuine values. And so we don't need to support Ukraine, for example, or, you know, whatever other case you might want to choose of a, of a question where there is a real you know, there are real questions of justice at stake. Now, Foucault is a much more sophisticated analyst of power than Thrasymachus was, so I don't want to reduce Foucault to Thrasymachus. But given that he has, you know, a more complicated discussion of power, he's making a very Thrasymachian argument, which is that you cannot really distinguish between justice and power and that then feeds into the third principle, which I fear the woke have abandoned, even though many of them are certainly acting in terms that are intended to create some progress in the world. They're based on very Foucauldian principles, which suggest that every attempted advance and improvement is in fact a more insidious and subtle form of oppression. And that's a very deep conviction that you find among the woke. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I want to I want to stay for a minute. Well, let's get to that in a, in, a, in a moment. Okay. With this justice and power question, because the distinction between the two, the possibility that justice and power can coexist. In fact, they do coexist. <laughs> they have to coexist. Mm -hmm. that, that, that power operates. But the question is whether power is everything. I mean, I think that's, that to me, I'm trying to find here. Yes, here you are. You say this at one point, students are absorbing, this is a quote from you, quote, students are absorbing a philosophical lesson that's very general. Power only vaguely tied to the actions of particular humans in particular institutions is the driving force of everything. Power even enfolds resistance, which reinforces power. It's power all the way down. In other words, that the, 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 the worldview that Foucault presents to us, even though it's a, he's a complicated person as well, but sure. is, is essentially that everything is about one person's control of another. You hear this in, the, in some of the anti, quote unquote, anti-racist views, which is that there's no interaction between two different people with races, which is not about power. Mm -hmm. It could not simply be, be about friendship. It could not be about love. It could not be, it's always, it's always really about one person's power over another. And that's also true about even between the relations between the sexes and all oh, that. Yeah. Now I obviously, because I think it's self-evident that power affects us that where we are positioned vis-a-vis -vis other people does have an influence on it. But it is just one of many things that can accurately describe us in those moments. Yeah. And the, the critical failure of workers is to understand none of those other things. In other words, again, a sort of reductionism to pure power and also power based upon abstraction that may not be in fact true in any specific individual case. So for example, white supremacy becomes this sort of weird, overwhelming concept which defines everything in our society. So that a white person's always now over a black person, say, or some other. But in any particular argument, for example, someone with of a different race could be 
wiping the floor with you in debates. Another white person is completely destroyed by the black person's superior intellect and argument. Or a whole variety of human interactions that simply escape, even if they never completely transcend, because power is always there. But then unless they, they, there's, there's drama, there's contingency, there's agency, there's human emotions, there's human histories. There's so much going on in that moment. And yet someone like Ibram Kendi wants to say no, no, you are actually just oppressing this person right now. And every, it is not a question of whether racism exists. It's, it's, it's in what form is it taking now? That's right. In what yep. form is it taking now? It's, it's so, and that's, that's an important philosophical argument, right? That, the, 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 in fact, everything is power. And, and truth itself, and this is the key thing, truth and reason are merely artifacts of power. They're not Absolutely. ways in which you could criticize power. So, in fact, you, 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 you kind of remove the ability to, to criticize or to step outside of your own system. You're you constantly defined outside. by it. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And as I talk about in, in the book, that view is reinforced by something that's taken to be to, today, you know, simply scientific, scientifically self-evident, namely evolutionary psychology. And it's mm. quite interesting because there have been um, very important, very serious Hi there. biologists. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>